at the firm that I work for now, like, I don't think they know how tall I am because I've never been <laughs> to the office. Like we have this hybrid learning thing, right? And the pandemic has taught us how to overcome these challenges. The world keeps moving on and we have to figure out a way to adapt. And when it came down to this thesis, I also thought about that. And I thought about how can I reach this site without reaching the site? How do I talk to these people without physically being there? Um, how do I use technology to my advantage? And to be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Unprecedented times call for new ways of thinking. How can our traditional ways of working respond to the climate crisis and social disruptions? especially in light of a global pandemic. What's next for architects building the future? Welcome back to Building Hope, a podcast from the University of Maryland's Architecture School. I'm Vincenza Perla, a current graduate student. And I'm Julie Gabrielli, a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland. In this season of Building Hope, we're featuring environmentally visionary architecture projects to explore how good design can build hope in a world facing a climate emergency. In this episode, we talk with Christian Romero, who during the pandemic shutdown found creative ways to engage people thousands of miles away using social media. He heard their stories, learned their preferences, and offered design options. In short, he listened. Professor Brian Kelly was his advisor on the project. Brian joins us for part of this conversation about how architects can best serve the communities in which we work. My project is located in a small harbor village called Wiskid in El Salvador, in the main city of La Union. Um, that's actually where my parents are from and where they migrated from during the Civil War. And um, I chose this site because I just had really bad memories about it. <laughs> and I just remembered a disheveled home that my grandma used to live in and and me just hating it and growing up, I realized that those memories kind of shape my architecture ideology in the future. So I guess I just chose it just because I wanted to give back to the communities um, that kind of made what architecture is for me today and helping them in some way, somehow without being condescending because I didn't want to just go up there and tell them what they should be doing um, without having any idea what it really is like. Being a first-generation student, it really makes you question where you fit in in that larger community of being Latino, of being El Salvadorian, um, without actually being there, without actually living there. So, Brian, um, as uh, Christian's thesis committee chair, I'm curious what your reaction was when Christian told you that he was going to crowdsource his research using social media? Well, I would underscore everything that Christian said about the fact that we were in an unprecedented situation and had to move forward with daily business, that the digital technologies, um, crowdsourcing uh, uh, connections to um, 
to distant communities seemed like the, the only way to have stakeholder input, which I think was, you know, from the very start, important to Christian. And then um, either partway through the thesis, or maybe it was through the, the research for the thesis, there was a lecturer that came uh, to the university from, um, from LA, and she presented uh, uh, a methodology for uh, getting stakeholder input. Um, and fairly quickly, I think the gears started turning in Christian's head about, well, I might not be able to do this in person. I, I can adapt what's on the shelf soft technologies to, um, to help inform my decision-making process in the thesis. What was interesting is I think the soft technologies, which um, we didn't think were all that radical, actually ended up becoming much more radical in the development of his thesis, meaning that he started off it with an idea that he was going to digitally print houses all over his thesis site. And a lot of the input from the stakeholders kept swaying him in a different direction. Um, and what's interesting is that sometimes these unprecedented um, opportunities uh, still do rely on precedent. What we were finding is people wanted houses to look like houses and not necessarily something from the movie Dune or something like that. You know, they were looking for, you know, what they aspired to live in. And, you know, it's not unlike what many people lived in uh, that already had houses already. So it was interesting that the the soft technologies ended up, I, I think, having a huge impact on the project and where the project went at the end of the day. So when we talk about innovation being necessary, maybe to solve pressing social and environmental problems, the people on the receiving end in the community might see innovation in a totally different way, <laughs> or, or they might not be all that enthusiastic about something that's quote unquote innovative. Well, and it's also, I think, kind of an issue of architecture as it's practiced in the United States. I mean, most architects do not do single family residential homes. Architecture as a profession only engages a very small percentage of single family homes. Uh, most, most homes are builder built or built by developers without the involvement of architects in the process. Oftentimes, I think that architects uh, are, are rather detached from what the general population might like. They see themselves as the prescribers of style. And the nice thing about the lesson I think that Christian got out of this is that he got a lesson of interacting with stakeholders, clients, that most students don't get when they're in architecture school. That kind of thing doesn't usually happen until you're you're out in practice. And so I think that prepared him well for, for transition back into the office. Yeah, no, exactly what Brian was saying. Like I had so many ideas, so many test prints, because I had a little mini 3D printer of what I wanted this new innovative home to look like. And I wanted to almost like force feed it to them, right? Like here, you take it. Like you're gonna get this because I made it cool. I made this cool site plan. The community is going to engage this way because I said so. And then it was a hard pill to swallow when I gave it to them. I gave it to my grandma out of all people. You know, this whole thesis was about my grandmother. Um, <laughs> and I gave it to her and she said, what, like, what is this? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I just, it just showed me, like, it made me question 
what architecture really is, what our role in designing communities really is about, right? Like, are we designing for the community or with the community? So it was a really interesting uh, process. Yeah, I'm actually very curious about what you learned about or how your thinking evolved about the role of architects um, from that experience or like, what does it mean to be an architect? As a undergrad and even going through graduate school, the idea of architect to me were folks like Bjark Engels or Taro Ando, these architects that are artists, right? That push the envelope of what space means to people um, and trying to make everything unique. For me, it was about fighting the system, even with Professor Kelly, right? Throughout my thesis, I butted heads. I was like, you know what? You told me to do this, but I'm not going to do it just because I'm an artist. I'm going to do something else. I want to push it even further. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. And I ended up realizing that, you know, even now studying to become a licensed architect, they tell you that, that you have to be the agents for your clients, that you are their representative. Um, even... Even if that means them not being able to afford something doesn't mean that you should care any less. Um, so for me, an architect now is becoming more about the client and less about the building itself. And that that question of who is the client, because for your thesis, you got to have the client be the actual individuals in the community that you spoke about so eloquently at your presentation. And now I think the kind of work you're doing is more developer driven, which is obviously the financial model of how most projects are delivered in this, in this country. You know, it's all business. Architecture is a business. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't pay, you don't get paid. You don't feed your family. Um, but where is that line drawn of you just building buildings for money and versus building buildings for the people that are supposed to serve? You're doing this for money and that's great. And you're developing these nice, you know, projects to house a lot of people um, probably for, a lot of monthly rent dues and stuff like that with a Starbucks or something in the, in the bottom floor retail with a bookshop. Um, but you didn't ask people what they wanted. Like, why are you just putting that there without really asking them how they feel about it? Um, and so I've just been, I just been, I guess, I don't want to say I've been complacent in seeing this, happening without putting my two cents in like, yo, we should stop this and go ask the community for their engagement, whether it be a public school or just, you know, a mixed use building by a developer. Like why, why can't we have both? Because I know for public schools, yeah, they have a couple of community meetings, um, a charrette, a design charrette with them. But what about everything else? What about like, why are you putting a gas station there when, you know, there is no, you know, there's no need for it. Um, it's like, how do I step out of it as a young architect or aspiring architect? How do I step out of that complacency and put my foot down? And how do I fight back and say, we need the involvement of this community, especially this community that's underprivileged, underrepresented. How do we, how do I stand up? Should, should the profession have a department for environmental or community outreach?
Young architects like Christian are exploring different ways of serving their communities. We asked him how he thinks about working once he's a licensed architect. Look around and see some of these young firms that are just really breaking the mold of what of how they work, you know, and as a little firm in DC where they they develop their own projects. They do small one-off projects, but they find the money, they find the investors, they they act as the developer uh, and the client. Um, so they can do what they want. <laughs> Um, yeah. it's, you know, not at a scale that some of these other folks are working at, but I think you're asking the right questions. It's like, um, until we ask those questions, you know, it'll just keep on going the way it's been going. It's almost like sustainability, right? The movement of sustainability in architecture has grown and grown more compared to like the Frank Lloyd Wright era where there's no insulation in their walls. Like who cares? And now it's like, it's mandatory. There's codes for it. There's right there's certifications for it. you get tax credits rebates for it and now it's will environmental justice be a part of that too in the future mm. I hope. like code required policy required yeah like code requires you to like i don't know something right like <laughs> yeah build build well like here's one you know what talk about climate resilience is kind of a, a new a new term not new but it's a it's an evolving term instead of sustainability, you know, like we would say, I'm making a climate resilient building or a climate resilient community. Um, and that's a, that's a that's a role, a leadership role that architects are starting to claim. Um, I don't know if you're seeing that in, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, I yeah. am. So. Christian began his thesis thinking it was a chance to showcase his design talent and to demonstrate skills he'd acquired through six years of architectural education. But when he heard the stories of his grandmother's neighbors and learned their preferences, he shifted instead to respond to their feedback and offer design options. He's got this novel approach of crowdsourcing via social media that kind of broke the mold of how we do thesis at Maryland. We asked his thesis chair, Brian Kelly, to reflect on the context of Christian's evolution. How did working with Christian during this pandemic, at a time of a lot of social upheaval as well, um, how did that inform your own thinking about the role of architects in solving these big pressing social and environmental problems? Um, and that could spill over into your thinking about architectural education more broadly. Yeah, I, I think it helped um, Christian immensely to, you know, a lot of times what thesis students will do in a thesis project is they'll develop a series of avatars that um, represent stakeholders and they invent them. So by doing that, um, it's questionable as to whether or not they really represent any kind of stakeholders or not. Um, and then they sort of pin up pictures of those people. And then when they go to go to finalize their design, they talk about the design in terms of, you know, how these avatars use that uh, design. Um, I, I, I found this um, experiment with social media that Christian entered into that facilitated a representation of somebody other than Christian to be incredibly powerful and helpful. And it makes me think that there ought to be ways earlier on in students' education to get them to understand 
uh, the, the value uh, of um, having other stakeholders, other perspectives, so that they realize that, yes, architecture is an art, and in some respects, architects are like artists, but, they, but there's a bigger um, uh, aspect to architecture because fundamentally it's, it makes the public realm and it is always public. What it dislodged in Christian was the opportunity to question the idea of the architect as the genius art, artist creator um, and tempered that. I, I, don't believe, I don't believe in a totally bottom-up system, but I also don't believe in a totally top-down system. And I think what Christian navigated in his thesis was some kind of rapprochement between the bottom-up and the top-down, and that he, he located himself as a, an emerging professional between those two forces as a kind of conductor or as an arbitrator as those two forces came together. And I think that was actually a, quite a mature thing. And a lot, you know, a lot of time I was skeptical as to whether he's going to get any input at all from people in social media, but you know, huzzah, he did it. And that's an interesting dynamic because um, we do have that expertise and you did bring this idea of 3D printing that you, and you researched all these precedents that are uh, working on building, um, you know, radically affordable uh, communities around um, the region. So, um, you know, we do have an expertise and we are allowed to use our expertise. You know, it's not like we're forcing it on people. They rely on us in some, in some ways. One of the things we're um, wrestling with in this podcast series is um, the idea of radical imagination and bringing that to bear on these dynamically interrelated problems that we face as a society. And so one question that we came up with was, uh, must a project be made of daring avant-garde forms to be radical? Or could it be that daring avant-garde thinking about say climate resilience or social justice may well result in just humble, simple forms? I think imagination gets better with experience. Um, I think early on, uh, radical innovation, imagination, that kind of stuff is, is kind of silly to ask a student to do because they, they don't have all the tools to do it with yet. Um, I think as, as one matures, it's, it's easier to form that radical thing into something tangible, something ultimately buildable and livable. I think oftentimes design studio projects are too long and they're not broken into enough components and um, they become so much about like, you know, did you do a good plan or how's your, how's your elevation fit into the context, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I, think, I think it's important to foster conversations and, and opportunities to think outside of the box, but at other points in time, I think it's incumbent on us as architects to, to look at how you make the box and, and, and uh, uh, ensure, you know, I mean, you may have some radical ideas, but they may be tempered by not only the buildability of something, but as I said before, the livability of something. And the assessment from the stakeholders, I think, was so important in this thesis because it helped to temper and, and guide Christian's decision-making process. 
Um, otherwise, it would have been you know, it would have been totally outside of the box thinking, and wouldn't have wouldn't I don't think it would have pushed Christian either professionally or uh, intellectually had he not done what he did uh, by having community stakeholders involved in uh, in the genesis of his project. The forms that you came up with are so simple and so classic and almost timeless. You know these these sort of overarching roofs that that create these shady places where people can have indoor outdoor living, uh, clear stories that allow for breezes to come through and and cool off the in, the inside rooms. Just really simple but elegant, you know, forms um, that also work well when you aggregate them together to create a block or a community. In his thesis presentation, Christian spoke about the colonial legacy of town planning in Whiskey. So we asked whether he positioned his project as a critique or a challenge of that top-down gridded geometry. When I did my research, um, it's funny how <laughs> even the colonial planning, it directed people in, in spaces towards the harbor and kind of, I guess, uniting the people through main roads, accesses to the harbor. And those early planning stages, you know, during the earlier times, um, at first I felt like we should step away from that. So I came up with plans that were almost like circular in nature, stepping away from an axial um, street grid that leads to the harbor that was set there by early colonists that wanted you to have access to either the church or the, to the harbor and kind of benefit them. It became, okay, how can it be different? And I realized that, okay, these, the people that live here now rely on those grids, rely on those early settlements um, to get around to places, to set up shop. Um, and all these homes have the similar style with a large front porch that are, that's gated. Um, in order for them to sell, it's almost like a, a mercado style where you walk down a street to the harbor or to the church and you see everything you need in terms of you need a cup of coffee, you need some snacks. My grandma sells snacks still to this day, just because of the nature of the way that the site was was planned in the very early stages. Um, and so I realized that when designing the, the site at first, um, I wanted something circular, I wanted something cool and unique, um, but it didn't work. So my site kind of reflected earlier planning stages of um, colonial times, um, because it fit the people, the, the, the people's needs better. It, it fit what they actually use a site for. Um, and so you, you, you start to see that in my site, you start to see these um, access grids that lead to spaces that are necessary, like community gathering spaces, gardens, um, spaces for play, spaces for, you know, just relaxation, upbringing like schools. And so that grid um, sort of evolved with, you know, feedback from the people and realizing what was needed versus what I wanted to put there. So it has, maybe it has that colonial past, that history, but it's also incredibly useful and familiar to people. So. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so it basically targets a, a harbor town that faces poverty, unhealthy living conditions, and the goal is to build a safer, cheaper, and more sustainable home alternative for the impoverished communities that's built for the community by the community 
um, and kind of guiding the community using um, tools such as so social media to get their input in as many ways as I could um, and kind of cater to them and not so much myself. The homes are to, you know, stay harmonious with its users and the users are to grow with the home. So it's not just something that you build and you just leave alone. They're designed to be evolved, kind of like elemental um, architecture. And then um, finally, the thesis itself kind of, how can I explain it? it? It becomes less about the homes itself and more about the process of, of learning to work with others, of learning to work for others, um, and learning how to work with a community as a tool that um, benefits you, not so much hinders you, because I know in the real estate development side, uh, there's not so much wanting community outreach. We were curious. Uh, I noticed in your presentation, you, you said that um, the houses, sort of the basic design, uh, could be 3D printed in about two days for around $4,000 of materials. Um, how did you come up with that figure? Yeah, so that figure was actually based off of a company that's currently doing these types of homes in Mexico, um, it's called Icon. And they even have printers for sale for about like $4,000, $5,000. Um, you give the community one printer and you can build so many homes, so many um, you know, basic shelter needs for a community that's disheveled or you know, dealing with crisis like earthquakes. El Salvador actually had an earthquake in 2002 that put about like 500,000 people out of homes. Um, so with something like this, with this technology, um, I don't see why there, why we can't provide homes for these people, right? Like, I don't see why there, there shouldn't be a way to take care of them. And so by using minimal amounts of material, concrete as a main structure, um, facade, um, there is no cladding on it. It's just literally layers and layers of concrete um, that can be changed with some color dyes. Um, add some aggregates like um, coffee um, grinds that uh, El Salvador is a big producer of, of coffee. So using that byproduct and being a little bit more sustainable and thinking about how we can use that in aggregates can not only be sustainable, but inexpensive. One other question about um, the community that your project is located in. Um, what what's going on with that now? And um, did you have you did you go back and show people there what you came up with? And um, are are any of these? Is there any chance that some of these could be built? Yeah. So I have reached back out. Um, I actually reached out to like local councilmen and local um, leaders. Um, and it's it's funny because a lot of the a lot of the the spaces are currently being developed now with homes that seem like they would have been printed like they could have been printed um my mother's actually over there in El Salvador right now my um and she took photos of all the spaces that I had envisioned for my site with development on them now and I'm like yo that's crazy like it's cool to see that it's being developed but knowing what could have been there it's kind of sad so I'm currently still waiting for more word from the higher ups on whether or not um, we can proceed with anything like this. It becomes more political um, 
than actually, you know, economical because this isn't something that a developer does. This is something that the community chooses to do. Um, so it becomes kind of like a political game at this point. Yeah, yeah. So. I don't know about you, but when I did my thesis um, in grad school, I was so, I mean, you work on it so deeply that I, I really, it felt real to me. I was so invested in it that um, it took a while for me to kind of come down from that and realize it's not actually a real building in the world. <laughs> um, but I just look at your project and think, but it could be real. It could, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I reached out to the to Icon. I've reached out to, you know, the beginning of these uh, of this project was just reaching out and make this thing physically appear because I didn't want it to just be an idea. Yeah. Um, and so it, it becomes much more challenging when you are a student just because they don't really take you serious um, and they don't really pay attention to you much. And so right now, I've actually been working with my cousin to translate my thesis as a whole. I have 96 pages, so I've been working with her to translate it um, so that she can hand it over to um, local governments there to, so you know, read, you know, like here, like this isn't just an idea. This is something that I've researched and put some time into. Um, I have plans. I've been developing them a little bit further to make it more concrete because, you know, we don't really have much time to go into like the details. Um, but making this thing a reality is, it's been my goal from the beginning of the thesis. And hopefully one day I'll get there. Oh, I'm so glad you're translating it. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah cool. it's a lot of, it's a lot of words. It was a lot of work doing it in English and not doing it in Spanish. It's even worse. We asked Christian to kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Is this project radical? Does he see himself as part of a larger movement? That's funny. I was thinking about this too earlier today. Um, I was telling my fiance that I think this project is interesting, not because of what I made, but what I learned individually. So for me, it's radical in terms of my personal growth. But that architecture has been done before, right? 3D printing has been done before. The, you know, the, the spaces have been done before. It's, it's not about that. It's about how you learn from it. And I think that part is radical. Do you see yourself as part of a movement? And if so, how would you define it? And how do you think it's going? I think with the work I'm doing currently for the firm is not a movement. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. But once I get my license and I'm free to just kind of work on my own and confidently say, I can, you know, stamp these drawings for you. It is a movement, right? To get the cus the not customer. I don't want to say customer because that involves like paying and stuff like that. But it is a movement where the users get to de decide. You know, it's not it's not me giving you something anymore. It's but you get what I'm saying. Where it's like it's a it's a crowdsourced movement that focuses on the people, for the people, by the people. God bless America. <laughs> <laughs> Or any other country. <laughs> yeah, or any other country, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's also cooperative ownership um, models that people are exploring, like land trusts and community land trusts, where you can own the community cooperatively rather than yeah. having investors come in. Because that's really the biggest hurdle, obviously, is how do you pay for it? <laughs> well, it sounds like, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from what you were saying earlier, too, it sounds like the community 
itself works really well. It's just that people are not well housed. The, the actual homes are in poor repair or they don't have their own homes that they need. But sort of the day-to-day interactions, the things they do, the schools, the sports, the like all of that in your presentation, I can totally see it. Yeah. It looks real. It, it, look, it is real. Yeah. I mean, it works. It's, it's there. Like we just have to, okay, you know, you're doing the right thing. Like, let me just help you out by giving you the space you need, the, the shelter, the, the extra like field that you need, the space you need. It's like a, it's a working microcosm. It's a little economy. It's a little world of its own working together. And that's what stopped me from doing my, my thing, right? My architectural dream of like designing honeycombs and whatever. And it made me realize it's not me. It's, it's you, you guys are doing it. I'm just, I'm realizing that now, like you, you, you're teaching me. It's like the reverse of if you build it, they will come. It's like, they're already there. <laughs> and then yeah. you build it. <laughs> exactly. And that's, you know, going back to that colonial like um, thought, you know, it was like, yeah, they built it. They went there and kind of like took over and started at it, but we reclaimed it and we made it ours. We made it work for us. I thought one of the most striking things about your presentation was the storytelling um, and, and Brian referenced that earlier too. Why do you think that that sort of storytelling resonates resonated so strongly with people? I feel like in architecture school, we don't, we, we learn how to storytell on a very minimal level, right? We have, a, we have an idea and, okay, it looks like this and I want to build it this way because I like, for example, music. I once had a project in undergrad where um, it was a site of an old jazz club and I wanted it to reference back to history. Um, I wanted it to resonate with the jazz community. Um, but then using storytelling in my thesis, it became more of, uh, I want to do this because of the history. This is, I want to do this because, because it means something to someone, right? And it's something real. It's not just, oh, it's, it's respecting the history. No, it's not. It's, this is more than just respecting the history. This is doing something for someone that's currently going through this at this present moment. Um, and this is starting just because of a memory that I had. Just because it's a memory for me doesn't mean that it's not still happening. And so when I tell those stories in architecture school, it's almost like, why are you, why are you being kind of like a Debbie Downer? Or why are you being so deep into, what, how do you remember the rain falling down on the roof? Why do you remember like the heat? Why do you remember all of that? That is because those are things that you're not taught in school. Like those are things that you don't really like notice unless you do like what, like study abroad or something. Um, and when people come back from study abroad, it's almost like life-changing because they realize, whoa, like these things that I'm feeling abroad are not what I, what I think and feel back home. So when I was telling these stories, it's, they're not stories. They're, they're things that are happening. It's real. They're real people. 
real people. And it's more about world. it's it's more about their future than it is about their past in a way. Exactly. So how do we how can we find something, a problem? How do we not fix it, but how do we work with them to to do something about it? Not just make believe. Kind of like what uh, Professor Kelly was saying about avatars. We design for avatars, less of real people. And that's why I feel like it resonated more. Yeah. And it's interesting too, you know, like <laughs> when I did the polls and I did the research, I was being kind of creepy and actually seeing the people that responded, right? Because I, I did surveys on what these people do, what do they do? Uh, some were bakers, some were um, construction workers, some were students, um, but they were all in it together in the same community. So I actually went through their profiles and was like, oh, like, look at their little family type of thing. Oh, look, they have a dog. And I'm like, this becomes even more than just like, <laughs> I have some renderings with like, I would have to find like these dog models, these families and put them in my renderings just because I saw it in one of the, the people that took the polls. Um, I saw it on their Instagram post and I'm like, that's so cute. I want to put it in my rendering. It's weird. I know. But <laughs> it is a little it is a little voyeuristic, but it's also like it's a way of grounding in in the real place and the real people's lives. And you know, like the renderings that you have of the people queuing up to get bread from the baker's house. It made me think of this bakery in Tucson. Um, there's always a line and it's always a block long. It's this tiny little hole in the wall commercial place, but they have the best bread you've ever had. And it's like I just I saw the the drawing that you did of the baker's house and I was like, oh my God, I know what that bread tastes like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. <laughs> no, that's one of okay, so like this this thesis started with all my memories about this place. And that was another memory, like people lining up at a house that looks like a house. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, what are you why are you guys outside on the street like that? But they're waiting for some delicious bread and snacks and mm -hmm. it all makes sense when you're there. But being outside, you're like, what? Do you, what? Wait until you try my grandma's tostones, then you'll be good. <laughs> That's right. Then you'll understand. Wow. All right. Last question is, um, how are you building hope? I guess I would say I'm I'm building hope by listening. That's it. <laughs>
for show notes, transcripts, guest bios, and curriculum materials. We're also on Instagram at Building Hope Pod. And on Substack at Building Hope. Please share and rate Building Hope on your favorite podcast app to help others find us too. This project is supported by a Faculty Student Research Award from the Graduate School at University of Maryland, as well as grants from the University's Sustainability Fund and the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation.